Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to wrap up family matters. I'll focus on the family. Hopefully, if you've been paying attention and listening and observing, the design started out by God in terms of very back in the book of Genesis on creation. God created male and female. We talked about the distinction that God had set up, that no matter what man may try to do, God is the one that has designed this thing. We talked about the functions and the roles of the male, the female, husbands, wives. And today we want to talk about the product of all of that, which would be children. And uh, there is a prescription that God has set forth that uh, if we're to have prosperous and happy families, we have to realize one thing. We have to do it God's way. I don't care how you and I have been brought up, and a lot of times we've been brought up and we lean on traditions and the things that we were taught as we were coming up, and some of that is good and some of that is not so good. But the key thing would always be for me is we go back to the Word of God. And what does God expect of us in terms of how we are to live out our lives in terms of family? And uh, there is definitely a need to be focused on the family. And family matters do matter. For out of our families comes the success of us as a nation, as a country, as a, as a church, and as a government. All that comes back to, always comes back to the home. And we live in an age where many of homes are being ripped apart by a lot of different things. So in Fishes chapter 6... Paul talks about, as a result of what he had said earlier, he talked about in chapter 5 about husbands, love your wives, Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and he worked his way down through that. But I want to deal with the, the, the fact of what all that means. What, as a result of what we've had, how, do we, how are we going to take all this in? Consider this, what do we perceive as the most important meaning of marriage? What is marriage? Is it joining two people together in marriage? Is that all there is? Is you have a man, you have a woman, they say they want to get married. We come down, we come to a church, or we go to a chapel, or we fly to Vegas, or whatever we do. Is that what marriage is? Is it about being legal before God and family? I mean, we live in an age where a lot of people say marriage is passe, that marriage is no longer necessary. You don't, marriage is just a piece of paper that, uh, you know, I can love. My significant other is. Uh, I don't have to have a piece of paper that says we are legally married. Is that what it, it has come down to? Or is it about having children? Do we have to be married to have children? The answer to that is no. But is it better that I am married so that I can't have children? Is it about the ceremony, about groomsmen, about bridesmaids, and the venue, and all that stuff that goes on? Is it about the, the celebration? Is that what marriage has come to now in our day and culture, that we're more than what the bride has on and how kind of food they had at the ceremony or at the afterwards? Is that what marriage is about? Well, the answer is no. Marriage is about the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. I'll repeat that again. Marriage is about 
the display, the outliving of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. Marriage is designed by God to show that the way Christ loves his church and the way he calls the church to love him. This is pictured for us in Ephesians 5, 23 through 25, which reads as follows. If you write there in Ephesians 23, it says, For husbands is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Most of us can't get beyond those words that are in that simple passage of scripture, which means for most of us, most of our marriages are not displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. Because we have in that passage words that we, we fight against and we buck up against and we don't really understand what this thing about marriage really pictures. It shows Christ and what Christ did for the church and it shows what the church has in terms of its response to Christ. So the husband represents Christ. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And he also says that the wife is to love her husband as we relate the church back to Christ. As the church submits to the authority and to what Christ wants to be done, likewise does the wife. So it is an actual outliving and a display of the, keeping, the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. So ultimately, having children... Is about making disciples. Having children is about making disciples. I'll be honest with you, when I got married and we had children, I never really thought about it in that way. Never. As long as I've been going through some things, and not just this past week, a few months ago, but as I've been reading and different, exposed to different things, I never really thought about that. Any of us that have children, it's not about just having children for children's sake. It's about having children in order to make them disciples for Christ. Wow. That was a wild moment when I thought about that because I thought, wow, if I really look at my life and Sheila and I as husband and wife, did we do it with intentionality? That when we had children, that we were thinking our children, we were to train them and teach them and bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to help them become disciples of Christ? The answer for me would be no. But I don't think I'm alone. I think there's many of us who, who are here as parents with honestly, if we be honest with ourselves, we would have to say that, you know what, I never really thought about it that way. Ephesians 5.23 starts us out because it models what the relationship is. A magnificent thing is, is, is going to be the fact that as we outlive all of this, it is modeled, it's going to be something magnificent. Just think about this. If Tyler, Joshua, and Sydney, if we bring them up and teach them and show them through our lives what it means to be a true disciple of Christ, and ultimately they come to a point where they are actual disciples of Christ, that would be a fantastic thing. If I and Sheila can leave anything, if you as you have children can leave anything to your children, it's not the material things. 
It's not that when you die, they get an inheritance or they get money or they get a house or they get a car. The best thing that I can ever leave for my children in terms of an inheritance, in terms of my legacy, would be the fact that they honestly come to know Christ for themselves. And that their testimony could be about their father and their mother is that their father and mother believed in God. They lived God. They had faith in God. They trusted God. And because of that, I am now rooted and grounded in the faith because of the legacy that my parents outlived before me as one of their children. That's the best thing you can leave. And many times we focus on a whole lot of other stuff instead of focusing on what Christ wants to be done. Marriage is the display of Christ in the church. Genesis 1, 26, uh, 28, verses 26 and 28, if you have a Bible, you can turn to that and read that. It talks about be fruitful and multiply. Where to be fruitful? That's what God said back in Genesis. Listen, I created man, I created woman, and I ask that you be fruitful and multiply. Make, here's what it is. Why did God say that? He wants our homes. He wants our marriages to be fruitful and that we're to multiply. Why? Just to have children? No, because each one of those children are to be the image bearers of God in a world that does not know God. The more children that we have, the more that they can be the image bearers of Christ, the more we can affect this world for positive impact. The purpose is not just to add bodies to the planet. The point is to increase the number of followers of Jesus on the planet. It's not about just having children for children's sake. It's about that the more, the more children there are, hopefully the more there will be more people that will be followers of Jesus. Which begs the question to answer it, that answers the question this. If we look at our world, are we doing a good job of making people followers of Jesus? Starting right in our own homes. Because what I sense is, when we talk about followers, and we talk about discipling, and we talk about all those things, most of us, if not all of us, have a certain reservation. Don't ask me to go out. Ask me to stay in. And let's just make it personal. What about your house? How good a discipler are you and I in our own four walls? Starting with ourselves? Starting with our wife married and starting with our children if we have them. And the honest answer would be we've all been weighed in the balances. And honest, the honest truth is we've been found wanting, which begs me to ask the question this. If we're wanting in our families, no wonder we're having a hard time talking about disciple making and witnessing and everything else when it comes to the church. Because we're not doing it in the four corners of our own wall. The purpose is not to add more bodies. The purpose is to have increased the number of followers for Jesus Christ on this earth. We want, not just in my house, but in all homes, our children to be followers of Jesus. Genesis 9.1 adds to that when he, when he talks about, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters of the sea. The plentiness of the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. How's that going to be done? When you and I in our own homes bring about a change in our own house? Psalm 27, 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior or the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who's, who fills his quiver with them. He should not be put to shame 
when he speaks with his enemies, with his enemies in the gate. What's the idea of that? Listen, I, first time I heard this verse explained, it's like, oh, okay. It's like being a, a warrior that has his quiver. You know the little thing that people, when they do bows and arrows, they had a little pouch? The more children you have, the more arrows you have to shoot. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. I have three arrows to shoot. I better shoot well. Some have two, some have one, whatever it is. But the point is, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Because he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. But not only that. Also, the idea, somebody says, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that in order to have, I have to be married and I have to do all this to have, to have children? No. Because even as a, as a single person, if you don't have children at all, the intent is you can have, quote, spiritual children. Meaning what? The people that you impact with your life, though they may not be biologically connected to you, yet spiritually you can reach out and have a saving impact on them. So it's not always about biologically having children, but it's our relationship in terms of the outside world. Jesus says uh, in Mark 10, 13 through 14, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In other words, children. Any child that you have an opportunity to impact for the kingdom is important. They don't have to be yours biologically, but you can reach out spiritually and touch the lives of our young people. Romans 8, 9, 8 says, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It doesn't have, like I just said, it does not have to be children of our flesh. They are the children of God, and they are the promise and are counted as offspring. They will be considered your children, though biologically you may not have any relationship to them, just because of what you have in terms of the impact on your life. I really believe, and I know, that our homes ought to be the nest from which spring forth our little eaglets. But for our homes to be the nest means that our homes have to be rooted and grounded in God and in his word. The, where you live with your children, if you've been blessed to have children, means that where they are, where they reside, ought to be the safest place on earth. For it's out of that nest that they learn all that they need to learn to fly forth and reproduce other image bearers, other disciples. But it starts at your house. With Sheila as my wife, and what we do with the three children that we've had the privilege of being able to have for these number of years. 515 ought to be the safe haven for them. In a world where they're battered and bruised, and people talk about them, and people do every other thing but call, call them every other name but a child of God, when they come home, ought to be the safest place. Amen? Now I'll just carry that over from the home, physical home, to being at the church. 
this is a nesting place that where it ought to be a safe place. That when you come, you feel safe and secure. Amen? Amen. That of all the places that you go to, and you know what? The sad indictment on us as a church or anybody as a church is there are many other places that people are going to to feel safe and secure. Why do they go to clubs and bars? Because they feel wanted. They feel safe. They feel secure. They may not know each other. They may not really like each other. But one thing about it, when they get together, they have, quote, they're, they're together for a purpose and for a reason. And what I'm finding is we don't know our purpose and we don't know our reason. And it's really simple. It's already been given to us. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. What is the, what is the design for us? Number one, we're to live for God. Number one, to be saved. If you're saved and transformed by the gospel, that's first base. You have to be saved and know Christ for yourself. After that, he calls into existence the church, which is an assembly of all other people who are saved and know they've been saved and want to be transformed by the gospel. I think about the old timers who had it right when they said, listen. They didn't know all the theology. They didn't know all the dot every I and cross every T. But one thing they understood, that if you were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, what did he do for them? He gave them a new way of talking, a new way of walking, a new way of thinking, and a new way of being. And what I'm finding out is we're trying to circumvent that. No. If he saves, he saves to the utmost. He saves once and done. Amen? We come together, and this place ought to be, and I understand we, we come from various backgrounds and different places and stuff, but our commonality ought to be our relationship to Jesus Christ. I may not be physically related to you by blood, but beyond that, the most important way we ought to be related to each other is by our relationship to Jesus Christ. Amen. It's Christ, not blood, that makes the difference. What does Paul say? Five observations. Five observations in Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through uh, 4. He says, children, obey your parents. Not father or mother only. He didn't say, obey your father, obey your mother. No, obey your what? Parents. Which indicates both father and mother have something to play in terms of bringing up their children. And he tells children, obey, O-B-E-Y, your parents. The father is to have a leading responsibility to bring up the children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For what reason? It's right. Not parents obey children. Children obey parents. And what is sad to say is we're living in a world where the parents are obeying the children instead of the children obeying the parents. And many times what children try to do, they try to put a guilt trip on you. And we equate our love by what we receive. The fact that you didn't do for me what I thought you should do, so you don't love me. The Bible doesn't teach that. You know why there's rebellion in a home between children and parents? Because God says, children, obey your parents. You've got the authority of the parents versus the self-will of the children. And where the two come together, that's where the anger comes in. 
Because the children think that if they don't get their way, that their parents does not love them. And you know what? That's how we do with God, too. Our self-will conflicts many times with what God says he wants us to do. And where that comes in comes anger and bitterness. Notice what he says here. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. If you want to live a long life, young people, or any of us as children, then you have to follow what he says. This is a commandment with promise. What's the promise? That our life will be uh, long if we honor our father and our mother. In light of what fathers and mothers have done, the sacrifices many have made for us as children, we're to honor them. Amen? And we should honor them. And it shouldn't be something that has to be preached or taught. It ought to come because we recognize what they have done for us. Many of us as parents could have bigger houses, bigger cars, more vacations, more this, more that. But the sacrifice that we made for our little rugrats, the things that we have done without, just so our children might have. Both parents are to be the object of children's obedience. Proverbs 6, 20 through 21, and then 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Second Timothy talks about, remember what you were taught from, the, from your youth. Why is it so important to come to Bible study? Why is it so important to come to Sunday school? Why is it important, so important to do that in your own home? It's because that's where they will learn about the things of God. We only have your young people for an hour or less. Once a week, you have them. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They live with you. If anybody is going to have an impact, it's going to be you, mother, father, Grandmother, grandfather, aunt, uncle, whoever you might be. They're looking at you and I to see if what we say and what we think and what we believe is actually lived out or is it a lie. We act churchy on Sunday, and then by Sunday afternoon, nothing in our life reflects anything about the glory of God. Somebody says, wow. Little eyes, little ears. That's why I'm a big proponent, and not many of us do it anymore. That's why when sometimes children don't need to be sitting, sitting around adults all the time. Oh, no, I grew up in an era that, you know what, when you had parties, I singer had a party, and we're, Sheila and I come over, and uh, let me reverse that. Yeah, and there's Seth and Kat, uh, Josh and Tyler. Oh, no, they didn't get to sit around all the whole time we were together. What we used to do is that we had, they would come in, hi, Mr. Hi, Mr. Mr. McGee, blah, blah, blah. And then whatever eating or snacks we had, they would go off to their own little room somewhere, eat their little snack, and then we there's games, there's movies. Y'all stay back here. That's the way we used to do it. I wouldn't allow, as a young person, to park myself and sit there while the adults were doing their thing. Oh, no. My mom was like, excuse, excuse me? You need to... That's why I put that back there for you. Because why? Little ears, little eyes, and then my children would tell you, loose lips sink ships. Because somewhere in a conversation, you might say something, and they don't really need to hear some of that, and they will innocently repeat what they hear. Believe me, I know. Children will say things that you and I will, you weren't supposed to say that. And that's why I try to teach mine. What goes on at 515 stays at 515. 
I don't care who it is. Aunt, uncle, grandma, grandma, no. Stays right here. And if they find out, I will know what lips were flapping in the wind. I know that doesn't go over well, but that's the truth. We have to understand that God wants us to raise up disciples. Father and mother should be united in, an effort, in their effort. God's design is a united front. It's not about dad has one rule, mom has another rule. Be together. Because you know why? Kids are good at pitting both parents against each other. They'll go to she, they'll come to me because they think they can come to me and I'll let them do whatever they want to do. But if they, we're not going to mom because mom's going to say no. But we'll go to dad because dad's not around much and he doesn't know. Can I go? And usually what I would say is, so what has your mother said? Or I'd say, so what are we, how are we lining up here? Because kids are masters at what? Pitting one against the other. Their goal is to bring about division. But a united front keeps children from being confused. How are they confused? They're confused because many adults are confused. When you have one saying one thing and another doing another, you're confused. That's why we got confusion in the church today. Because God says one thing and somebody else has said another and we don't know which way to go. We're confused. Mom, one way. Dad, another. But did you ever think about this? That with God, God is one. Amen? God is one. And if God is one, we as parents ought to be one. You don't see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one of them wrangling for their own position and doing things opposite. They all work together, even as the Godhead. If they do that, if God does that within the Godhead, guess what? We ought to do it within our own homes. Ought to be one, a united front. It's you as adults and parents versus all those ones in your house. They're out to get us. Show our children God. Is the next one. God wants transformation, but it starts with you and I as parents. Dad, your strength, your leadership, and protection, and justice, and love. That's what God expects from us. Our strength. Not muscle so much, but the ability to handle life circumstances. When you're on a ship and it's getting ready to go down, the worst thing that could happen to you is a captain of the ship. The captain. You see the captain going, what's happening? The ship is sinking. What, what should we do? No. When you're on an airplane, the worst thing that could happen is the microphone is open to the pilot. And he says, oh, my God, we've, we've lost an engine. I have no clues what we're supposed to do. You're sitting in the cabin thinking, wait a minute. He doesn't know what to do. If he doesn't know what to do, God help us. But you want the guy that comes over and says, ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing some difficulties, but rest assured, we have everything under control. We're going to make our descent down to uh, 25,000 feet, and uh, everything will be all right. I know we have a little turbulence, but we've been told that if we lower our altitude, everything will be fine. Ah, thank you. Amen. As is on an airplane. So that should be in our homes. We as men ought to have, 
strength to be able to give our wives and our children the assurance of God has got this thing. Amen? Leadership. Everybody talks about leadership, but you know what? That's a, that's a heavy burden to have. Because when you, try, when you want to lead, when you do lead, many people don't want to follow. They ask for leadership. And I, I'm, I'm tending to think of what, what somebody says, be careful what you ask for. My message the other week about men and, and, and women and all that. I'm like, some of, the, some of you, the sisters and ladies, say you want a, a man. Well, be careful what you ask for. Not just any man, but a God man. You may want a M-A-N, but you, some of us don't want a God man. Because with a God man, it may go contrary to what we think a real man is about. Moms. So dad has strength, leadership, and protection. Justice and love. Moms have the care, the nurture, and the warmth, and intimacy, justice, and love. I, as a father, Sheila as the mother, you in your home as father, mother, husband, wife, let's be honest. Sometimes I, I, I see this acted out, played out of my own family. It's not that they don't love me. Not that they don't think I can do some things. But there's something about mom. Amen? Dad, I know you're there, but I'm going to go talk to mom. Not a problem. We ain't in this thing for our competition. The caring, the nurturing, the warmth, the intimacy. Like I tell my family sometimes, I know where that comes from. She had you for nine months. And there's some things that we as men cannot break. And that's the bond between a child and its mother. And I'm a firm believer. Not that men can't be nurturing. Not that men can't care. Not that men can't be intimate. That's not the point. But that's not how we were designed. We, have, we can have those traits, but that's not who we are. God did not intend us to show, you know, I'm a, this whole thing back a few years ago, men want to get in touch with their feminine side. Well, no. There's no feminine side. Can I be caring? Sure. Can I be loving? Yes. Can I have? Yeah. But that's not how God in his infinite wisdom designed us. The two shall be one. The one complements the other. Where man was designed one way, woman was designed another way, when they come together, they make one. It's called complementarianism. The man and the woman together complement each other so that the one and the other helps the other become better. When Jesus, when God talks about the, the, the two different fleshes, Lord willing, at the end of this year, if everything works out all right, and I know some of you are saying, is there a problem in the land? No, but I don't assume anything. At the end of this year, I will have the privilege, if all these things work out and everything goes well, Lord willing, Joshua and Sierra will be married in holy matrimony. Two different people, two different backgrounds, two different families coming together. And one of the things that I will say to them is that the two of you shall become one flesh. What's the idea of that? The idea of one flesh is like taking two pieces of paper, glue them together, and that once they're glued together, you cannot separate it. That's the idea of one flesh. The two shall be one. I understand we think of it in sexual con context, but beyond that is the two shall be one. You can't, once you put them together, 
That's why I said, what God has put together, let what? No man put asunder. God, if God is in this thing, God puts two people together, glues them together so that you can try all you want to get two separate pieces of paper together, together again, but you can't do it because God is supposed to be the one that puts these things together. That's why marriage is, is such a serious thing. It's not a joke. And we make light of a lot of things, and we make light of marriage. We, we make light of commitment, but marriage is a serious thing. Having children is a serious thing. He says, obey, parents, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, that you may live long. And then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. His father, the real directive is towards we as fathers. We are to be the ones that were responsible. When Jesus comes knocking at 515 Marlena Drive and says, he's not going to ask, as Sheila answers the door, he's not going to say, okay, I need to ask a question. Jesus' first response is going to be, where's your husband? Why? Because Jesus looks as the father and I as a husband as the head of my house, not Sheila. She's involved. She's part of it. Yes. But for the Lord, when he knocks, he's going to he who says he's the head and say, I need to talk to you about whatever. What's going on here? And I know by our responses, we don't necessarily agree with that, but that is the Bible way. God has always held. That's why it was such a serious thing in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, when Eve sinned. God didn't hold her so much responsible as he did Adam. Why? Because God gave first the command to Adam. Adam was first formed, then Eve. It's all about order. Is she involved? Yes. But the weight of what happened fell on Adam. Because before Eve came, because Eve was out of Adam, before Eve even showed up on the scene, Adam was the one that God told, take care of the garden. And of all the things in the garden, there's only one tree you're not allowed to eat of. Got it? And I don't know if he got it or not. Evidently, he didn't because he listened to the voice of his wife, his woman, and started the whole process. But God said, Adam, where are you? It's about order. It's about discipline. It's about the way God created things. His design is that children grow up watching Christ love the church and watch, as husbands and watching the church delight in following Christ. Wives, children, children need to see this from the time they are born. From the moment they come into your house until they leave, they need to see you reflect that every single day. To the best of God gives you the strength to do it. The main meaning is this. Husbands, wives, covenant keeping. But out of that is the second greatest thing is that now, because of that, we're able to make disciples for Jesus. Raise your kids up to be disciples of Jesus. But you can't do that, and I can't do that, unless the power of God is in our life. Focus on the family, family matters. Amen?